Before we begin the podcast, I have a very important announcement. Today, and really the whole week, our organization, Torch, is running our annual fundraiser. The website for the fundraiser is givetorch.org. As you know, our organization, Torch, does amazing things. We have the best rabbis on the planet. Of course, I am not biased when I make that assessment. We have the best Torah podcast on the planet. And again, I'm not biased about that. But we have a lot of expenses. We're a nonprofit. There is no steady flow of income. And the only way that we can pay our bills, and we can pay the rabbis and the rabbitsons and pay the rent for the Amazing Torch Center, and to pay for all the amazing things we need to do here at Torch, the only way we do that is via the generosity of our friends and supporters. We have to fundraise. Now, some organizations like to fundraise all the time. Every time you provide services... You provide value. You ask for some support. After all, you're a nonprofit. But a torch, we have a different philosophy. The whole year long, we provide Torah. We provide Jewish wisdom and insight. All for free. The Torch Center is all for free. The podcasts are all free. And then once a year, we do a week of fundraising. We do a blitz of fundraising at givetorch.org and we raise in one week, please God, the bulk of our annual operating expenses and that week is right now. And after all, you are listening to our podcast. You enjoy our work. You appreciate what we do. You find our offerings to be interesting and educational and valuable and compelling So today, I hereby ask for your support. Please give us your support to keep the flame of torch lit for 2022. I'm asking you for your friendship. I'm asking you for your generosity. I am asking you, please go visit right now, givetorch.org. There is a link in the description of this podcast. Visit the website, givetorch.org, and make a donation to Torch. This is a matching fundraiser which means that every donation at givetorch.org will be tripled by an incredible group of matchers. So please give what you can give. Support the annual fundraiser. Amplify your donation. It's going to be tripled. And help make this campaign a success. If everyone listening right now stops what they're doing and visits givetorch.org and gives what they can give, This campaign will be a success and the great work of Torch will continue. The flame of Torch will continue. It will shine brightly for another year. Without your support, I certainly wouldn't be able to do the podcasts. Torch wouldn't be able to be functional. We'd have to close. And I don't know what I would do. I would maybe sell mortgages or cabinets, work in healthcare become a lawyer, I'd have to find a new job. But thanks to you, thanks to the generosity of the supporters of our organization, Torch, Torch is able to teach and spread Torah in never-before-seen scales just via the podcasts this year, this past year in 2021. We eclipsed more than a half a million downloads and we were perennially listed amongst the top podcasts in Judaism. And I want to stress, 
this amazing accomplishment, it's not mine, it's not ours, the great team here at Torch. This is the handiwork of all of you who supported our organization, us together, accomplished these amazing accomplishments over this past year here at Torch. We don't believe that we have any donors. Even though you may go to givetorch.org and make a donation and you'll get an email that says, thank you for your donation. We don't look at donors as donors. We view them as partners. Whatever merit we get from the unprecedented amount of Torah and Jewish heritage and Jewish history that we spread here at Torch, whatever merit we get, that's divided between us, the amazing team at Torch, and the partners who support our work. You have my pledge. If you invest in us, if you invest in our team here at Torch, if you become a partner at givetorch.org, I commit myself, please God, with help of the Almighty, to work tirelessly over the upcoming year on behalf of you, my partner. I commit to give 110% to advance the goals of connecting Jews and Judaism over this upcoming year if you're my partner. And I'll tell you that this past year, it was, of course, a crazy year, as every year seems to be, but the light of torch and the flame of torch was burning brightly the entire year. Thank God the efforts of Torch bore fruit. We succeeded in doing incredible things this year. We spread Torah in ways never seen before. In fact, we had an internal goal here at Torch to try to have a million touches of Torah, which means someone who comes to our class, someone who comes to the Torch Center, someone who meets with one of the rabbis, someone who downloads one of the podcasts. We had over a million touches of Torah this past year. And we hope, of course, every year to grow that number but we need your help. So please click the pause button, pause the podcast, visit givetorch.org. You can find the link in the description and give what you can give to support Torch in 2022 to support the podcast. This is an online fundraiser. It's a matching fundraiser. Every donation will be tripled. And there's a link in the description. And I'm asking you please to pause the podcast and visit givetorch.org and support Torch and support the amazing podcasts that we produce. Now, I know from previous years that when I make this appeal, the one annual appeal to go to givetorch.org, some of y'all will say, you know what, Rabbi, you convinced me. I'm going to give in. I'm going to give generously. I'm going to go to givetorch.org right now and give what I can give. And all the people who do that, you should be blessed with unlimited blessing. You should be showered with tremendous blessing from the Almighty for your generosity. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your partnership. But many of y'all will say, you know what? Ah, let me click skip. Skip 30 seconds. Skip, skip, skip. Let's get rid of this appeal. Get it over with. Some of you are just not convinced. So every year I try to persuade even the skeptics that supporting Torch at GiveTorch.org is a worthy cause, one of the worthiest charities for you to invest in. Now, last year I made a big mistake. Last year I tried to persuade you by doing something really foolish 
and really reckless. Last year, I decided to give up my cell phone number, 713-301-3611, to the whole world. Whoever listens to this podcast will know my number. What a terrible mistake I did last year. Why would anyone share their cell phone number and tell the world that it's 713-301-3611? Who knows who may call him? Who may text him at 713-301-3611? That's what I did last year, and this year I'm not making that same mistake. This year I'm not going to be giving out my cell phone number. This year I'm going to try to speak to your heart and to your logic. So if you've never given, and you say, you know what, yeah, they do some great work. Yeah, I enjoy the podcast. You know what? The Torch Center sounds kind of swell, but you've never pulled the trigger to become partner. Now is the time for you to invest your charity dollars, your charity dinars, your charity pound sterling in Torch. And here's my argument. You're giving tzedakah, you're giving charity anyhow. You're supporting worthy causes anyhow. Why not allocate some of your support, some of your charity dollars, some of your charity funds, some of your generosity to Torch to support the amazing work that we do here? I think the Torch is maybe one of the worthiest causes there is. After all, we're trying to connect Jews and Judaism. Is there a greater mission than that? But also, we offer the best bang for your buck. We have a shoestring operation here. The rabbis and rabbitons are working round the clock to connect Jews and Judaism. And we do only one fundraiser a year. And today's that day. And we need your help. So please visit givetorch.org. You give and you keep the flame of torch lit. Whoever supports us, whoever visits the website, givetorch.org, the link is in the description, is a partner with us in our work. If everyone who's listening says, I am going to partner with Torch, I'm going to visit givetorch.org, I'm going to make a donation, every donation will be tripled, we will accomplish our goal. And it's very important for me to have 100% participation. I want to get everyone on board. Give what you can give. If you've given in the past, give generously again in 2022. Partner with us. Partner with Torch. Support us. Support the Parsha Podcast. Support the Jewish History Podcast. Support the Torah 101 Podcast. Support this Jewish Life Podcast. Support the Mizzah Podcast. Support the Ethics Podcast. Support all the fantastic work of Torch. I know it's hard. I know it's a schlep. But stop the podcast. Visit givetorch.org. You won't regret it. And forgive me for pestering you. If I have your number, I will probably try to call you this week. Be nice to me, please. Even if I'm interrupting you, please forgive me. We do this only once a year. Support us. Support the amazing work. GiveTorch.org. Thank you so much for an amazing year of Torch Podcasts. I am eternally grateful to you for your support. Thank you for listening. Please, God, the campaign will be a smashing success. And Torch will have another fabulous year. And we're going to have this tough conversation, this business meeting again next year. But right now, I need you to visit givetorch.org and give what you can give. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalbajima.com. And now, to the podcast. 
This ethics podcast is dedicated anonymously by a kind and generous friend of the podcast and friend of Torch, and he wanted to share the message with the audience from Psalms 4017. May they rejoice and be glad in you, all those who seek you. Yomru samid yigdal Hashem May they always say, Hashem, be magnified, those who love your salvation. And of course, we thank him for his friendship and his support and his generosity. We are up to the sixth chapter of Perkyavos. This is the sixth and the final chapter of Perkyavos. We've done five chapters. Now it's up to chapter number six. The Mishnah begins, Shanu Chacham and Belashana Mishnah. The sages taught in the language of the Mishnah. We'll see what that means, because this is actually not technically a Mishnah. It's a Brisa, but it was appendaged to the Mishnah. Okay, what did our sages teach in the language of the Mishnah? Blessed is he who chose them in their Mishnahs and their teachings. What's the text of the Mishnah? Rabbi Meir Omer. Rabbi Meir says. Rabbi Meir is actually the primary author of all of Mishnah, the great student of Rabbi Akiva, he taught as follows. Listen to this. Whoever engages in Torah study for its own sake, merits a lot of things. If you study Torah for its own sake, not for an ulterior purpose, you merit many things. We'll see what that means. And not only that, not only do you get many things, but the entire creation of the world, it's all worthwhile for him alone. Moreover, Nikra Reya, he is called a friend, Ahuv and beloved. He loves God. He loves people. He gladdens the omnipresent. He gladdens people. Umabashto anav of a and the Torah clothes him with humility and fear of God. Umachsharto lios tzadik v'chasid v'yashar v'neman, and it makes him fit. It primes him to be righteous, to be devout, to be pious, to be upright, to be faithful. Umarachakto menachet it distances him from sin. Umikaravto lideschus and it draws him close to merit. V'nehenim mimenu eitzav esoshia and people enjoy from him counsel and wisdom advice. Bino Gvura, understanding and strength. Shenemar Li Eitzovisoshia. Ani Bina Li Gvura. Venoselislo Malchusumamshal, it gives him kinship and dominion. Vechikor Din, an analytical judgment. Umegalim lo Raze Torah. And they revealed to him the secrets of the Torah. Venase Kemayon Hamiskaber. And he becomes like a wellspring that flows ever stronger. Ukenahar Shainaposek. And like a river that never ceases. And he becomes modest, and one patient of spirit. And he forgives those who insult him. And it exalts him above all actions. Welcome to the sixth chapter of Perkevos. This is a very unique chapter. It's a chapter that deals primarily, or exclusively really, with Torah study and the greatness of Torah study. And we just started by reading a whole long list of benefits for someone who studies Torah, 
for its own sake, lishma for its own sake, not for any ulterior reasons. They get a lot of themes. Not only that, they get all these things that are mentioned and enumerated. Now, the Mishnah begins with an unusual preamble. Shanu chachamim balashan Mishnah. Our sages taught in the language of the Mishnah. So the commentaries explain, Rashi explains, everyone explains that this is actually not technically a Mishnah. Instead, it is a Brisa. Now, what exactly does that mean? There is a, an era of sages called the Mishnahic era. And we meet people like Hillel and Shammai and Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai and Rabbi Yezer and Rabbi Yoshua and Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Ativ and Rabbi Tarf, a lot of famous rabbis who are featured in the Mishnahic era. And they taught. And they taught their students and they codified the oral law and they organized the oral law. And eventually this was all compiled into the Mishnah, which is the book of laws of the oral Torah by Rabbi Judah the Prince. And he took the writings of Rabbi Meir and he supplemented to the writings of Rabbi Meir to organize and codify the Mishnah. Broken down into six general sections or six orders. Shisha Sidre Mishnah. 63 different books, all of oral Torah in the Mishnah. There were teachings from that same era that were not included in the Mishnah. Instead, they are what's called brysas, a brysa or brysos. And they're included in other books and they're featured very often in the Talmud, Talmud is peppered with teachings from the Mishnah and the Brisa, and our chapter is technically not a Mishnah, it is a Brisa. And therefore, before we read this Mishnah, we have to know it's actually not technically a Mishnah, we call it Mishnah, it's chapter 6 of the Mishnah, but truthfully it's not, in fact, technically a Mishnah. And Rashi explains that because these teachings of the Brisa related to the benefit of Torah study, therefore, it's part of the tradition to always include it in the book of Pirkei Avos, in the book of Mishnah Pirkei Avos. But it's interesting, if you look at the commentaries, there are some commentaries that only give commentary on the Mishnah, on the first five chapters, and not the sixth and final one. Now, the Chassid Yaivetz, he is one of the commentaries that does, in fact, offer commentary on the sixth chapter. And he says that the entire purpose of the first five chapters of Perkyavos was to arrive at chapter six. Chapter six, the one we're about to embark upon. This is an entire chapter that talks about Torah study and the greatness of Torah study and the power, the awesomeness of Torah study. But in order to have Torah study, you don't prepare for it like you prepare for any other discipline. Any other discipline, you have to do maybe the prereqs. But the prereqs are very much connected to the actual subject you want to study. What are the prerequisites of Torah? The prerequisites of Torah are to have good character, are to have refined character, to make yourself into a vessel that is spiritually ready and fit for Torah study. You would say that ethics and morals and character should not have anything to do with a discipline of wisdom. You could be a, an incredible physician or architect or engineer with bad character. Those two are unrelated. You may be a terrible guy, poor bedside manners, but you're still 
excellent in your craft. Torah is not like that. Torah is the wisdom of God, and it only resides in a person that can represent the values of Torah, can be a vessel that is fitting to bear the Torah inside of them. And therefore, we have five chapters that deal primarily with improving our character, refining our ethical persona. And now it's time for chapter six. Once we are a vessel that is primed and ready for Torah, now it's time to focus on Torah itself. And this is the meaning for the preparation for Sinai. Of course, this uh, past week we read in Parshas Yisro about the preparation for Sinai. You got to prepare for three days. You got to clean your garments. There is a process of preparation for Torah where you have to cleanse yourself, you have to refine yourself, you have to improve yourself, and then you prepare for Torah. And once you have all the sterling qualities outlined in the preceding chapters, it's time to get to Torah. And he brings an incredible story. The Talmud tells us that the greatest sage of the Mishnaic era was none other than Rabbi Akiva. And Rabbi Akiva, he grew up as an ignorant shepherd. And at the age of 40, he dedicated himself to Torah study. And eventually catapulted all his peers and became the greatest sage of the generation. What prompted the change of heart? So there were a few things, of course, that started with the dripping the rock that created the cylindrical hole. We know that story. But his wife played a big role. His wife was the daughter of the richest man in Judah. And Rabbi Tiva was a shepherd working for his wife's father. And she noticed him. Rachel, the wife of Rabbi Tiva, noticed him. And she noticed that he had incredibly refined character. And she was able to spot someone that can become a transcendental sage. And she said to him, if you pledge to commit yourself to Torah study, I am so confident that you have what it takes. I'm willing to commit myself to you. And indeed, the match went through. And they had to elope because daddy wasn't happy about it. And daddy disowned her. But nevertheless, she was right. How did she know that Rebekah was qualified or had the ability to become such a great sage? What did she see in him? What did she spot in him that made her so confident that this ignoramus who knew nothing can become a giant sage? So the Talmud tells us she saw his character. She saw his refined qualities. She saw his modesty. She saw sterling characters that rendered him a completely perfected vessel. And now all you need to do is just drop Torah in it. That's it. 99% of the job is done, even though he's totally ignorant, because now he has the vessel. And the better the vessel, the easier it is to stuff it with Torah. If you have sterling qualities, you're primed for Torah. First five chapters, get those qualities. Now let's talk about Torah. And by the way, there's a tradition to read Perkeavos, to read the chapters of our fathers, ethics of our fathers in the weeks preceding Shavuos. On Shavuos, that's the festival that we celebrate the, the getting of the Torah. 
you want to prepare for Torah, spend the time a on the preparation, get those qualities, make yourself a vessel worthy of absorbing Torah, and then chapter six, Torah itself. So we have this brisa that talks about the power of Torah, and it starts off by telling us. Whoever engages in Torah study, lishma, lishma for its own sake. What is the idea of Torah lishma? There's two kinds of Torah study. There's Torah study that's lishma, and that begets all the amazing accolades of our Mishnah, or our Brisa. And then there's all other kinds of Torah study that don't have this result, that don't engender these tremendous qualities. What is the definition of Torah? Lashma Torah for its own sake. Now this term appears in many places in Jewish literature. For example, Talmud tells us in a bunch of places, in the book of Sanhedrin, in the book of Nazir, in like four or five places we read the following. Amar of Yehuda Marav, a person should always engage in Torah and mitzvos even not lishma, even not for its own sake. Why? Shemetoch shalolishma ba lishma. That through a person engaging when it's not lishma, when it's not for its intended sake, they will eventually come to engage in Torah study for its sake. We have this idea. The motivations behind mitzvot, the motivations behind Torah. It could be for its sake or it could be not for its sake. And this Mishnah tells us, or this, this Talmudic teaching tells us, a tactical idea. It's important to get your reps in Torah and mitzvos. Even if it's not perfect, even if it's not lishma, even if it's not for its intended sake, do it. Because that is the way for you to whet your appetite, get a taste of the flavor of Torah, and eventually, hopefully, you will graduate to doing it for its intended purpose. But there's an amazing idea applied to this Talmud. It says that you should study Torah and do mitzvos, even shalolishma, even when it's not for its intended purpose. Why? Because doing that will eventually bring you to doing it for its intended purpose. Implied is that the only saving grace of doing a mitzvah or studying Torah not for its intended purpose is that it may eventually bring you to doing it lishma for its intended purpose. The goal of all of Torah and mitzvot, according to the Talmud, is to do it properly, not to just go through the motions, not to just do it for some sort of ulterior purpose, to study Torah and to do mitzvot exclusively for the intended purpose, with the highest motivation. Now, I'm going to share with you a comment that will probably change your life. This is the comment from the Rambam in his commentary to Mishnah on the final Mishnah of the Book of Makros. The Mishnah says, Rabbi Hananiah ben Akashia Omer, so of course, of course, the author of the Mishnah, the Almighty wanted to benefit Israel. 
Therefore, Lefidach, therefore, here Balahem Torah Mitzvah. He gave them a lot of Torah and a lot of Mitzvahs. Why do we have so many mitzvos? Why are there so many commandments? Why is there so much rules governing every aspect of our lives? Why is the Torah so comprehensive? Here we have the answer. Because the Almighty wants to benefit us. The Almighty wants to benefit us. Now you can make the argument that having more mitzvos, well, that's potential for more mistakes. How many times could you mess up if you have a mitzvah every five minutes to do? There's more room for stumbling blocks, for obstacles, for blunders. Here we're told that we have so many mitzvos because the Almighty wants to benefit us. What does this mean? Says the Rambam. Mi'ikriya amuna, one of the principles of our faith, is that when a person does one mitzvah, out of the sister team mitzvos. But they do it properly. Kara'ui uchehogen. Properly. In the way it's intended to be done. And not combine with it any other motivation in the entire world. Zero other motivation. Rather, to do it lishma. To do it for its intended purpose. Me'ahav out of love of God. You do one mitzvah. With one mitzvah, you can merit a golden ticket to Olam Abba. How many mitzvahs do you need to do to get to Olam Abba? Says the Ramam, you need to do one. Not a million, not a billion, not a trillion, one. But it's got to be done properly, completely properly. Lishma. And therefore, the Mishnah says that there are multitudes of mitzvahs because they create multitudes of opportunities to get that one perfect mitzvah. There's a preponderance of mitzvahs that facilitates more and more and more opportunities to get that one mitzvah done perfectly through which a person will have eternal life forever. The mitzvah, because there's so many mitzvahs, it's not possible that a person will do at least one in their life properly, completely properly. When you do that one mitzvah completely perfectly, your soul will live forever thanks to that deed. We vastly underestimate the power of mitzvahs. Here we're told again, this is the Rambam, change your life. This is the Rambam, the most reputable source that we could possibly think of. And I gave you the source. You know I'm not making this up. It's this comment to the final Mishnah of the book of Makros. You do one mitzvah properly, that is enough to earn you eternal life. Therefore, more opportunities to do mitzvahs equals more opportunities to earn a golden ticket forever. But this shows us the power of the mitzvah is is distributed between the doing the mitzvah itself and the motivation behind it. And the real power is the motivation. What's a person thinking? What are they trying to get out of this? You do a mitzvah and you say, wow, everyone's going to see I'm so generous, I'm so kind, I'm so moral, I'm so upstanding, I'm so pious. They'll give me accolades, pat me the back. They'll give me honor. 
I'll get prestige. All that is not, it's not the intended mitzvah, the intended purpose. Intended purpose means I want to do what's right. I'm not thinking about reward. I want to listen to the Almighty because I love him. For all that he does for me, how can I not love him? And do it perfectly, just one, that's enough. That's the power of lishma. Because now you are actually earning a piece of total, pure, unadulterated, unalloyed spirituality. That's what you're earning. Once you have that, it can never be taken away from you. You can never lose a portion of eternity. Because you have it, you earn it, you earned it. That's what lishma means. Out of love, not for the sake of reward, not for the sake of honor, not for any other ulterior purpose, aside from love of God. Lishma is the highest method of performance of any mitzvah. And doing it even once guarantees you a ticket to eternity. What's our Mishnah talking about? Our Mishnah is a superfusion. It's talking about the greatest mitzvah, which is Torah study, coupled with the greatest method of performance of a mitzvah, namely, Lishma. When you have this amazing alliance, a unity, a fusion of these two things, the greatest mitzvah, Torah, and the greatest motivation of doing any mitzvah, Lishma, that creates a tremendous power that results in all the incredible accolades and qualities of our Mishnah. Now, who's the author of this Mishnah? Again, we're calling it a Mishnah, even though technically it's a Brisa. Who's the author of this teaching? It's Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir has a very interesting career trajectory. And one of the most unusual aspects of his life is the fact that his primary teacher was Elisha ben Avuya, who was the only great sage in antiquity that became a heretic. We have heretics, but most of them are not brand names. You know, they're just marginal figures. There was one sage who was a bona fide sage, one of the sages amongst the council of sages, amongst the greats. Legit. And he became a heretic. And one of his students was Rabbi Meir. And a subplot of all of Rabbi Meir's life is he's trying to wrestle with and try to rectify the fact that his teacher became a heretic. He's working really hard to restore Elisha ben Avuya, who eventually is renamed Acher. He's called Acher, the other one. He's the other one, that one, that, that bad egg, the bad apple, the black sheep. This is one of the primary events and themes of Rabbi Meir's life. Rabbi Meir, incidentally, the Talmud tells us, he continued to study under his teacher even after his teacher became a heretic. Normally, you have a teacher, they may be very wise, but eh, when it comes to Torah, it has to be perfect. The Talmud tells us 
that if your teacher is akin to an angel, then you should ask them for Torah. But if not, maybe don't ask them for, for Torah. Like we said earlier, the Torah's got to have a, a vessel. It's got to be in a good vessel worthy of bearing Torah. If the vessel's a heretic, maybe this is not the best place you should study Torah from. Rabbi Meir, nevertheless, was able to do it. He was able to separate the good part of the teaching from the bad part. Comes along Rabbi Meir and tells us the idea of Torah Lishma. It's got to be for the right intended purpose. Why was Elisha ben Avuya, the teacher of Rabbi Meir, why did he eventually go awry and become a heretic? So we're told, we're told in the Talmud that there was a very unusual event at the bris, at the circumcision ceremony of Elisha ben Avuya. As is common today, when there was a bris, there's a lot of time for people to mill about before, you know, the mole gets ready and all the people are there and there's lots of extra time. So the people on one side were chatting about sports and other, other people were chatting about politics and the other people were chatting about business. Everyone was chatting. And there were some sages there as well. And they said, well, they're chatting about their things. Let us chat about our things. So the two great sages, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yoshua, start studying Torah together. What happens when you have these giants, veritable angels, studying Torah together? They recreated the experience of Sinai. Sinai, we read about in the Parsha. Sinai, there was fire and cloud and everything was trembling. If you study Torah with the same joy and intensity of Sinai, you're able to recreate that experience. So before long, these two sages, waiting for the bris to get underway, a fire encircles them, just like there was a fire at Sinai. And Avuya, the father of the baby, is like, what's going on? You want to burn my house down? What's happening? Why is there a fire here? So they explained to him, this, this is Torah. This is the power of Torah. This is the power of Torah? This boy, Elisha, I'm going to dedicate him to Torah. I want him to have that same spark, that same fire. So the sages say that this is what was wrong at the onset of Elisha's life. It was not Torah Lishma. It wasn't for its intended purpose. He wanted the pizzazz, the honor, the mystique, the fire of Torah. It wasn't motivated by wanting to know the will of God, wanting to to connect to God on a deeper level. And because the beginning of the trajectory was off, that eventually became corrupted and Elisha became a heretic. And therefore comes along Rabbi Meir and says, I know this story really intimately well. My teacher, I know where he went wrong and I want to tell you about it. I want to tell you about Torah Lishma. Because yes, he studied a lot of Torah, but there was at the root, at the core of his Torah study, there was something off. It was not Lishma, and that's why it did not have all the cascading benefits outlined in this Mishnah. And he was vulnerable to becoming a heretic. Now, there's a very important and famous piece from the Ruach Chaim, authored by Rabbi Chaim Velazhner, who wrote the famous book Nefesh HaChaim. He talks about what Lishma actually means. 
And he's trying to caution against someone thinking that Lishma is all about the devotion. And I want to sing songs. And I want to praise God. And that's going to be my Torah study. I'll have lots of songs and music. And it'll be a very uplifting experience. That is not Lishma. Studying Torah, Lishma, it means turning over every stone to try to discover and uncover the will of God. It's a commitment to try to decipher and disentangle and understand at the deepest level possible what does God want. Torah Lishma, for its sake, means for the sake of Torah. It doesn't mean that you divorce Torah from its source, of course. You don't think of Torah as independent, some sort of independent discipline that is severed from God. But when you are studying, the objective has to be to analyze, investigate, ponder, probe, and pursue what is the Torah telling me, and to understand it as deeply, as comprehensively, as intensely as you can. And he quotes the Midrash. The Midrash says that David, when he wrote the Psalms, his prayer was that when someone says the Psalms, it should be as impactful as when they study the laws of Negoim and Ahalos, the very complicated laws of purity and impurity in the Torah. And God said, no. Even though Psalms connect a person in their heart to God, Torah Lishma is about understanding the Torah. And if you get sidetracked with emotional stuff, and that's the focus, the devotion, but not the diligence, that, in fact, is not Lishma. And then he adds that the result of someone studying with this kind of intensity is a love of Torah that is unmatched by any other discipline in the world. Someone who engages in this kind of Torah study, even though when you start off, it's less exciting. You start off, it's like, wow, so many technicalities. This is so difficult. Why is there such a, a complicated draconian laws? And what does it even matter? We all start off as cynics. But once you plumb yourself into the depths of Torah, you immerse yourself in the deep waters of Torah, you develop a taste for it, and you can't get enough of it. And he says a line, I want to read this line. When someone loves Torah, a person will think, if only I didn't need to sleep. And if only I didn't need to waste my time with eating. When someone has the flow, they're in the flow of Torah study, that's all they want to do. And food and sleep, they're all distractions that can't possibly equal the joy and the delight that I'm having here in Torah study. So there's something very powerful here being described that most of us, I think, have never experienced. If you have ever had the great privilege of being in a yeshiva, you can get a sense of what of what magic is being described here. And if you've ever had the privilege of creating novel Torah ideas, new Torah insights that were never around previously, and you spend 10 hours, 20 hours, and you stay up all night trying to figure out a complex 
problem in the Talmud or a difficult comment in the Rambam. If you've ever done that, and finally after 10 hours of toil, you hit pay dirt and you discover an insight that just changes everything. Your entire understanding of the of the subject is altered. Everything fits into place beautifully. You've experienced the taste of what he's talking about. And it brings you joy and delight and pleasure that is unmatched by anything else in the world. Nothing else can possibly rival this experience. And you end up with having this world and the next world. It's a beautiful thing. You know, we, we think there's a, there's a bargain here. You know what? The Almighty wants you to be really spiritual. Oh, but I, all I want to do is to, is to, is to watch television and, and to binge Netflix and to eat food. And, and why is the Almighty doing this to me? And why do I deal with all this spiritual stuff and the agenda of the soul? So you say, you know what? The Almighty wants you to suffer a little bit in this world. Suffer, but eventually in Olamaba, in the future world, you'll end up with a reward. Okay, you convinced me. Okay, fine. That's not what the Torah is really about. The Torah wants you to connect to your soul here. But if you truly do that, you'll end up with a much better world here than anything else that the physical body and its sensations could possibly give you. There are levels of pleasure and experiences that you can have here that touch your soul that greatly exceed any other physical sensual pleasure. You know, I'll give you an example of this. A lot of people think, why should I have a child? It's very expensive. It sounds like a nightmare. You got to deal with diapers and all that. And then, the, and then you work really hard and then the teenagers, they hate you. Or at least so they say. They're rebellious. And then they, they get off and they live their life. It just sounds like a nightmare, a, a seriatum of nightmares. Why would anyone do that? It's a good question. If you're evaluating the cost-benefit analysis of your life here as a parent or not as a parent, it's really hard to to sell someone on, on the benefits of bringing a child to the world. And you know what? There's a good argument there. But this opportunity to bring a child, to have a child, and to feel that love and that unconditional love and that connection and that that the fact that that you that, that that there's a child that's completely dependent upon you and you care for that child, it doesn't titulate your body. There's something about your soul. There's a pleasure that's a deep, intense pleasure that parents have, even though they're suffering so much. But that's something that's unrivaled by any other physical hedonistic experience. The Almighty wants us to have not just a, a life here of misery and want and lack and asceticism and suffering and live a monastic life with no pleasure. No, it's it's exactly the opposite. He wants us to have the highest level of pleasure, even here. And, of course, the things that really matter are things you have to work really hard to get. You know, these things are not handed to you. So he's talking about Torah Lashma, Torah study on this very high level for its intended purposes with, you know, leaving no stone unturned and really working hard to figure out what the Torah is telling us. That's the hardest thing in the world. But it's the most gratifying as well. And look at the power it gives you. Look at the list of things in our mission. We'll go through them one by one. 
There is power in Torah study that is unlocked when you do it properly for the best and highest intended purposes. If you don't have those motivations, well, then you've lost the power of Torah. It's still a great thing, of course. It's something that you should do tactically because maybe eventually you can arrive at the destination, but you will not be able to unlock all these things. So what are the things that you get? Whoever engages in Torah study, lishma. So the first thing we're told is zoche lidvarim harbei. Merits many things. And not only that, not only are there many themes, there's all these specific themes. There are unnamed themes that are not enumerated in this Mishnah. So what, in fact, are they? We have a list of all these amazing things, beloved by God, beloved by the people, happy with God, all these amazing things that are listed in the Mishnah. But it starts off by saying he merits many things. What are those many things? So my grandfather used to always say from his teacher, the great Rabbi Rucham, he used to say that a, a true Torah scholar exists simultaneously in two concurrent worlds. There's the inner world, and then there is the external world. A true Torah scholar has an inner existence that's completely hidden from all. And of course, there's an external existence that others can perceive. Some things about how a Torah scholar is transformed are perceptible, and those are the ones that are enumerated in this Mishnah. And some things are totally unfathomable. They're totally invisible to anyone else. And all we know is that there's something else going on there. Dvarim Harbei, lots of things. But that is totally beyond us. And it gives the analogy just as God tells Moshe, you could see my back, but not my face. We're going to read about that in a couple of weeks. In the book of Exodus, there's something about, so to speak, the experience of God that no human can possibly fathom. Similarly, of course, on a very different level, in a Torah scholar, there are parts of the experience of what that actually means that are completely hidden and shrouded from the eyes of others. And the only thing we could say about it, Zoche Ledvarim Habre, they merit many unnamed and imperceptible things to outsiders. The Ruach Chaim says something fascinating. As I mentioned earlier, it's incorrect to say that the bargain of Torah is, well, you study Torah and you do mitzvot, you suffer in this world, but okay, you'll make up for it in the next world. That's not the bargain. The bargain is you'll have the next world, but this world you won't lose out. Not only that, you'll have access, you'll have a portal to higher level experiences. The Talmud tells us that when someone studies Torah for not the correct purposes, not Lishma, someone like that ends up getting what they want. They want honor. Let me study Torah so I get honor. Look at the honor. They want money. They want prestige. They want access to the rabbinate. They'll get what they want. Torah, after all, is that powerful. So you want all those other things? You'll get it. But what about the person who studies Torah Lishma? 
Will they lose out? Says the Talmud, no. They won't lose out. And everything that the other person got via the not lishma, they will get via the lishma. And therefore, says the Ruachayim, when it says, they merit many things, that's not referring to anything specific. Whatever the neighbor who's studying Torah, Shalom Lishma, not Lishma, whatever they get also goes to the person studying Torah Lishma. And then he says a second answer. He says that when you study Torah, a lot of what you study is not relevant to you practically. So if you study Torah about the laws of sacrifices, well, there hasn't been a sacrifice offered in thousands of years. Of course, we hope the temple will be rebuilt and we'll have an altar, we'll bring sacrifices. But it's been a really long time since we had a temple and since we offered any sacrifices. You look at the Jewish bookshelf and say, "What? where are the laws of sacrifices? They say, no, no, it's not a bookshelf. It's a library. There is so much written on this subject. Talmud tells us that all the mitzvahs that we cannot fulfill in a practical sense the way to earn the spiritual merit of that mitzvah is by studying the Torah portions that relate to it. So if you study the laws about a sacrifice, it is as if you have offered that sacrifice. And that's the way to do all 613 mitzvahs, even though you can't, because it can't be, well, maybe I shouldn't say this. I don't know, maybe today you could, but you, ordinarily, at least in ancient times, you can't be a man and a woman and a Kohen and a Levite and an Israelite and a king. And a convert, there's, there's laws that are given to all these different people and you can't do all of them because it's not possible for one person to be all of those people. So how do you get all 613? The answer is you study the relevant Torah portions. You merit many things. All these mitzvos that you cannot fulfill in a practical sense, you merit it via Torah study. Now in general, you know, this Mishnah is just an amazing insight into the cascading benefits of Torah study. And I think that if you've never been privy to a real Torah sage, and there are very few of them in the world, much fewer in the United States, there's much more of them in Israel, but still, it's, it's still, it's still very rare to find a, a bona fide Torah sage. But if you've never met someone like that, and I have, but if you never met someone like that, this whole Mishnah sounds like a fantasy. How could it be that you just study Torah and you get all these amazing benefits? It's unlike any other discipline. You know, if you study law, maybe you'll become a lawyer. You study engineering or uh, architecture or medicine, you get what you study, nothing else. Here we're told that there's a big overlap. You study Torah Lishma, Torah for its intended sake, and you get all these other amazing things. There are a vast number of other things that the Torah bequeaths upon those who study at Lashma. And it's very interesting. It shows us the power and the uniqueness of Torah. So what are these things? So it tells us that not only do you get a bunch of other things, but the creation of the entire world or the whole world is worthwhile for him alone. Commentaries tell us here that the Torah is the glue that binds the worlds together. Now, what does that mean? 
This world, if it were to be severed from the spiritual realms, this world would self-combust. Why? Because nothing physical can exist unless it has a spiritual life force giving it vitality. So this world has got to be connected to the spiritual world or else it ceases to exist. What are those pipelines? What's the glue that connects those worlds? Well, the Torah. Moshe, where did he get the Torah from? He went to heaven to get the Torah. And he brings it down to us, but the roots, the soul of the Torah is still rooted in heaven. And when you study Torah, you're accessing that wisdom, the heavenly wisdom, and that creates a bond between you and your environs and your universe and your world to the spiritual world. And through that connection, life and vitality can flow from heaven on high here. Should there be a second or a moment where there's no Torah studying the entire world, that connection gets severed and this world is on its own and it self-combusts. So who do we have to thank for the endurance of the world? The Torah sages. They're the ones that keep this place afloat. They're the essential workers. <laughs> They're the ones keeping the, the world extant. The whole world is held up by these people. Nikra Rea Ahuv. They are a beloved friend. They're partners with God. They're colleagues with God. Who upholds the world? Of course, God is continuously endowing the world with vitality. But who is God's partner? It's the Torah sages. He loves God, not just himself. If he loved himself, then he would focus on all the things that he could get out of Torah study. But he studies Torah with the love of God, and he loves humanity. Why would someone who studies Torah, Lishma, love humanity? So here's the answer. When someone earns a taste in the finer things of existence, they cease to covet all the small pleasures of this world. The Chassid says something amazing here. Hate is artificial. The natural state of man, mankind, is to love humanity. And the only reason why we don't love each other is all a byproduct of bad character. Envy, lust, pursuit of honor. These are the roots of hate. But once you're someone who's elevated, and you're not thinking about the petty little stuff of this world, well, the natural result of that is that you will love humanity. And you will give joy to God and you will give joy to humanity. You're making God happy because you're studying His Torah. And that prompts God to bestow to the whole world more goodness, and thereby you make humanity happy. And it clothes Him with humility and fear of God. Someone who's living on this higher level, they take life really seriously. And Torah works in the opposite way, in that you know, if you have a great wise person, a great physicist, a great physician, a talented surgeon, 
Sometimes they say, oh, look how powerful I am, look how amazing I am, look how incredible I, I am. It makes them very haughty. You watch a football game and the players are all convinced that they're so talented and they show off and they, where's the humility? Well, they had humility before they were good and now they're good. So there's no humility. Torah works in the opposite way, that the greater Torah style you get, the more elevated and refined you get and the more humility you have. Again, I've seen this with my own eyes. Great sages, giant scholars with no bravado, no air of superiority, lifting up all the people around them. Unbelievable thing. It prompts someone, it makes them fit to become a tzaddik, a chassid, a yasher, an emon, a righteous person, a devout person, an upright person, and a faithful person. Torah primes you, but here's the idea of Musar. Even if someone is studying Torah Lishma, they are primed and ready to become this kind of person, to become a, a tzaddik, a chassid, a pious person, a righteous person. Nevertheless, you still have to do some work on your own. Okay. It distances him from sin and brings him close to merit. What does that mean? First of all, it says it doesn't save you from sin. It distances you from sin. When someone is engaged in this high level of living, there is a gulf, a delta, a distance between them and sin. They still need to resist, but it's much easier. The sin is out of their orbit. By contrast, the mitzvot, the merits, the righteousness is now closer to them. It's in their orbit. And this is the opposite of the default. We had a Mishnah earlier in Ethics of Our Fathers that tells us that we have to rots the mitzvah, we should run and pursue an easy mitzvah as if it was a difficult mitzvah. And we should flee from sin. That implies that the mitzvahs are fleeing from us and we have to chase them down, pursue them, and the sins are pursuing us and we have to run away from them. The default state of man is that the mitzvah is running away and the sin is running towards. Someone who studies Torah Lishma changes that calculus. There's now distance between them and sin. The sin is running away from them. And there is proximity between them and mitzvahs. The mitzvahs are much closer to them. And the reason, the commentaries explain, is because by default, you know, we have the two competing existences. We've got the body, the soul, the physicality, the animalistic side, and the spirituality, the intellectual and spiritual side. And the default is that we're much more physical. That's how we start off life. Your baby, you can't talk to baby about Torah. They, they want food, they want comfort, they want a, they want a bath, they want uh, cuddling, they want all these things, very physical stuff. And the hope is that as you progress over life, you become much more dignified and refined and more, much more fit, much more spiritual. That's the objective. Someone is studying Torah Lishma, they have graduated from the small pleasures of physicality. They've tasted something real. And as a result, they're going to lose interest in the small things in life. The Rambam says, listen to this analogy. He says there's a king who used to like to play ball when he was a little king, a little boy. A little boy loves to play ball, but now he's a king. 
And says, hey, let's play ball. So the Ram says, someone who's involved in the higher matters of state, someone who's in charge of, you know, a real kingdom, they are, they have access to higher levels of pleasure and playing with a ball is not going to stimulate them anymore. Once you've tasted the real pleasures, games of children are not going to titulate you anymore. And therefore, the, you know, the emptied calories, the quick hits, the rush of dopamine. And when you're unsophisticated and immature, as we all are by default, physical, you just want, you know, as many hits of that as possible. And that's where the sins are pursuing you. Because that's, you know, your default state. That they have a spiritual mitzvah. It's running away from you. You gotta chase it down if you want it. But once you have been trained, once you've been exposed to the higher levels of pleasure, well, in that universe, everything's flipped on its head. It's the opposite. And that's what happens to someone who studies Torah Lishma. You can give advice in every arena. The sages tell us that the real objective of Torah is to harmonize human intellect with divine intellect. We're given access to divine intellect and we can upgrade our own faculties with the divine intellect. As a result of that, you could ask a great Torah sage matters of advice and counsel in areas outside their professed expertise and they will give you spot-on accurate advice. And the reason is because they have access to a higher level of intellect than you do. They've upgraded their CPU, GPU. They've upgraded their intellect to divine intellect. You have no chance next to them. But what do they know about whatever it is? They don't, they don't necessarily need to be trained in the area in which the question is raised, they have a supercomputer. They got access to a higher level, a different realm of intellect that vastly exceeds the way things start off as. It gives you kingdom and dominion. Just like the intellect rules the rest of the body, so too, someone who is so intellectually oriented is superior to the rest of society. And they're able to see the depth of the law. You can see every case and know how it connects to Torah, understand what principles of Torah are at play at the depth of the case. And the secrets of Torah are revealed to them. The commentaries here say, that the secrets of Torah are really always present. They're right in front of your nose. But you're blind. And sometimes when you're working through a problem and you see something after lots of hard work that you ask yourself, well, that was obvious. Why didn't I see it initially? We all start off as being a little bit blind. And the Almighty wants us to work. But once we work, he starts to remove little blind spots from us. And that's the system. It's always there. It's always there. It's always obvious. 
But if you're blind, God forbid, then you can't see it. Quotes a verse in Psalms, Gal David prays, uncover my eyes and let me see wonders from your Torah. And this person becomes like a wellspring that's overflowing, like a river that does not stop. You see the great Torah sages, and they're never just replaying the old hits. They don't just go through the oldies. If you see someone that is always saying the same stuff, just repeating repeating the same content, you know that they're not studying Torah Lashma. Because someone who studies Torah Lashma, they're like a wellspring, always producing new insights and new content. You know, I get astonished when I look at the output, let's say, of my grandfather of blessed memory. Not the books that he wrote. Not the writings that he has. Not the essays that he wrote. It's astonishing. The, the intellectual output in Torah of these giants is just simply stunning. You have professors, you know, they worked on their curriculum and their syllabus and they just do it year after year. The same thing over and over again. It's very rare to find someone that is like this outside of Torah. Someone's constantly producing more and more. But that is the secret of Torah study Lishma. It creates an unending wellspring of Torah. But they don't show off. They are modest. They're patient. They're forgiving. They stay high. They remain high. They don't stoop down to lows. They're modest. They don't brag. They're not bombastic about the gifts that God sends their way. If someone gives you a silly insult, you just ignore it. You absorb it because you're operating on a higher level. And it elevates the person. And it makes them exalted above other things. The Talmud tells us that there is the heavens and there is the things that are above the heavens and there are the things that are below the heavens. And it quotes two verses that seem to be contradictory. One verse says, your kindness, i.e. God's kindness, is amazing up to the heavens. And then a second verse in Psalms says, your kindness is great even above the heavens. So which is it? Does God's kindness end at the heavens or does it exceed the heavens? Says the Talmud, it depends. If it's Lishma, if you're studying Lishma, then it is even above the heavens. If it is not Lishma, then it's only till the heavens. This is this idea. A person via Torah study Lishma can become supernatural above the heavens. If you've never met a real Torah sage, this mission sounds fanciful. But if you ever have had the great privilege of meeting, of meeting a real Torah sage, what is described here is patently evident. The Chazonish, for example, when he was 13 years old, he committed himself to studying Torah Lishma, and he had every single one of these qualities. Every quality enumerated in our Mishnah slash Brisa is found in genuine Torah scholars. I always say that the best proof for the divinity of Torah is this. This Mishnah is the best proof. When you meet people that have such sterling qualities, 
and there's no flaws. And you try to find a flaw, and the more you know them, the the the, the more intimate you are in in seeing their character, the more refined they are. Normally, it's the opposite. You know, people could portray themselves as being very righteous, but when you get to know them, you see that there's all kinds of corruption. It doesn't work like that with Torah scholars. Torah scholars, the closer you are to the epicenter, the greater you discover that they are. Where does that come from? It comes from studying Torah Lishma and all the things that it begets. My grandfather, blessed memory, he gave a eulogy to one of the famous rabbis of the 20th century, Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Arbach. And he went through this Mishnah thing by thing and gave an example of how the great sage truly embodied all these characteristics. Kindness, gentleness of character, giving everyone counsel, encouraging other people, humble, forgiving, constantly producing more Torah, insight and wisdom on a completely different level. I was thinking this is, this is an amazing pitch for Torah. And it's even more amazing if you ever have the opportunity to actually see it. My grandfather, the blessed memory, used to always say that if you have a chance to actually meet a real Torah scholar, and again, there are much fewer today than there were in the past, and most of them are actually in Israel, but if you have an opportunity, elbow your way into their inner circles... And it's not going to be easy because they're hounded. It doesn't matter. Elbow your way in to see them up close because it's forever going to change your relationship with Torah and it may change your life. So here we go. We're on the sixth chapter, the sixth and final chapter, and we're learning all about Torah and Torah study. And we read about Torah study Lishma for its sake. And the Raman tells us one mitzvah done Lishma is forever going to change your life. You have access to eternity that you can never lose. But look at how many tremendous gifts are bestowed upon someone who studies Torah, Lishma. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Again, a reminder, please visit givetorch.org. Every donation is tripled. We need your support. The website is givetorch.org. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.